have a deep wondering. It's a long-standing wondering. I wonder who in here, who online, likes change? Eh? Well, this isn't going to work if no one raises their hand. Thank you, Nancy. Thank you. Anyone in here like change? I assumed that none of you would really raise your hand and say yes. Okay, so why, why really do you not like change? Tell, like, tell me, tell me, tell me. I'm an engineer. I'm an engineer. Okay, okay. Other reasons you don't like change? It's too much work. Good. Too much is uncertain. Life is good the way it is. Ellen, thank you. Others. You have to learn new things. So, someone write all this down. I can't write it down and repeat it. Other reasons you don't like change. It's uncomfortable. Anything else? Habits, habits, that's a good answer, John, thank you. It's risky. Compromise. Have you been reading Acts 15? Anyone else? Reasons you don't like change. Say it again. Fear. Mm, yes, fear. Now I wonder, I was wondering if anyone really does like change. I do wonder uh, how you process, how you perceive uh, the change in seasons. Not all bad. Robert gives me a thumbs up. A change in your mood. That could be good. A change in, in your maturity. Or maybe even a change of mind. You see, change... It's hard, but it's also so good. Change is there, is created by God for a, a reason. Change is in the very nature of, 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 of creation, and we can say that change is in the very nature of being human. Our cells uh, turn over every so often, even, even our, our bones are, are, are different, are, are the, the cells in our bones change. We are not like the same physical creatures that we were 10 years ago. We're actually even different physical creatures change. It is so hard, and usually we don't like it, but we are doing it like in this very moment, you and your body is changing. In this very moment, Seasons are changing. Maybe in this very moment, your mood is changing. In this very moment, your maturity is changing. And maybe you have experienced in your life a change of mind, a change of heart, a change of soul. You may not like change, but change can be good. And here we are in our series and acts and I feel like most of what we've talked about in Acts is, is this change that has occurred again and again and again with the people of God. And then something uh, takes place where the people all have to gather around and look at change. 
Uh, and so would you uh, take out a Bible if you have one? If you don't have one, we conveniently place them, conveniently place them in the pew or the chair in front of you. We've also conveniently put them on the screen. Byron does this so faithfully every single week. Even when the preacher doesn't give him the, the, the text that he needs every single week, and he's so gracious uh, to do it on Sunday morning. Uh, but we are in Acts 15. We are going to read verses 1 through 21. And as you listen, I want you to, to pay attention to a few things. The, the people groups that are there, and I want you to pay attention to this thing that they are gathered around. Acts 15, starting in verse 1, the, the title or the subtitle in my Bible says, The Council at Jerusalem. Certain people came down from Jerusalem to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and the elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through uh, Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. And this news made all the believers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice. God made a choice among you that Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to, to them just as he did us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this as, is, as it is written. After this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. Even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things, things known from long ago. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and from the meat of strangled animals and from blood. 
For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times, and it is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. The word of God for the people of God then and absolutely right now. There are some things that we're dealing with here in Acts 15, okay? I'd like to distill it down to three things. Uh, We have a variety of perspectives. We have the potential for change. And we have a decision. There's a decision before the people. And I don't know about you, but when you put these three things together, you get pause for some serious disagreement. We don't know uh, uh, anything about this as church people, do we? We never disagree or argue. Um, There is never a variety of perspectives here, uh, people in the church. There is never the possibility for change among us, and we never, ever have to make decisions, right? So this this is kind of, it's not foreign, okay, beyond the sarcasm. uh, These things, these three components have, have divided churches, They have made enemies out of friends, adversaries out of next of kin. They have imploded some missions and ministries and organizations. You hear the stories all the time. You see, when these three things, a variety of perspectives, the potential for change and the decision before the people, when these three things are at play, the stakes are high. The stakes are very high. I imagine you... You can't help but think of certain scenarios you've been in, maybe even discussions, uh, disagreements you've been in as we're talking. But you see here in Acts 15 is that when the stakes are high with the people of God, the spirit of God is higher. The spirit of God is wider and deeper and active, and the people aren't on their own. They are on with God. And especially when we consider who was organized together and what kinds of people they were, we really see a miracle among us. Uh, Acts 15 says that all these groups were together. All these people were together. I imagine them kind of gathered in a big circle, and we know that they fought it out. And I want to pay attention to kind of a few of the different perspectives that were at play here in this round table or this council, as they call it, in Jerusalem. First, we have uh, Christian Pharisees. This seems to me like an oxymoron. And I'm really interested uh, in doing even more study on who Christian Pharisees are, uh, uh, the whole, that whole thing as it developed. You see, because, because Pharisees were people who upheld religious law for the sake of the, the Jewish people. Okay, this was, the, this was their bread and butter. They were paid for this, and they did it faithfully and well. And so the fact that they were uh, encountered by Jesus and transformed by the power of Jesus uh, changed is an absolute miracle. I, want, I, want, I wonder if we uh, could imagine Christian Pharisees in, in our context today. These are uh, those of us who um, perhaps hold that old-time religion, those who are rooted in tradition, who want to uphold tradition and maintain tradition. 
And these people have experienced a conversion, maybe a few conversions in their life of, of faith, of participating in the church. And they yet say, uh, let us hold on to this tradition, to this old time religion that is so dear to us. They do this while seeking to integrate a life of faith with Jesus. Let me say, we need perspectives like this in the church. These people and these perspectives are valuable. We need to remain tethered to our history. We need to learn from our history and we need to build from our history. Christian Pharisees were important to this conversation. Okay, then it says that we have disciples of Jesus. One in particular who talks a lot, Peter, okay? Peter was a very ordinary person. There was nothing specifically flashy about him before his encounter with Jesus. He was just a regular guy who liked to go fishing and was not even very good at it, okay? But he, but he did it anyway, so we have a guy who's like marginally good at his job, um, and Jesus says, even if you're kind of a failure, um, I want you to follow me. In our context, this is an ordinary person, someone without a lot of clout, not a lot of success in their positions, they're not CEOs, but God has empowered this person for ministry, and God gave this person the opportunity for transformation. And this person, even if they didn't even fully understand what they were saying yes to, said yes, received the transformation. And that God walked along with this one long enough that they might be changed. And then given the keys to the kingdom of God. And then be told that on this Peter rock, you might remember this in scripture, I'm going to build my church off of you. Peter was just an ordinary guy, and God decided to build a church off of Peter. He was a little rough around the edges. Maybe he didn't say things exactly the way he was supposed to say them. Maybe when you encountered him in the narthex, it was like, ooh, what's going to happen? But he was enthused to reach people, so enthused that he talks a lot about it. We need perspectives like this in the church. These are valuable perspectives. These perspectives help us move beyond our Christianese and our religious platitudes and help us get to the heart of the matter. We need Peter. And then we hear about, uh, we had disciples of Jesus, uh, Christian Pharisees, and then we have friends of Jesus, specifically James. Uh, James was actually Jesus' brother, um, so they're kind of half-brothers. We don't know how the, all the DNA worked, but, but, uh, but, they, but they were brothers. And you can imagine how the rivalry or the communication worked with them. But, but uh, scripture and tradition tells us that James came to faith in Jesus after Jesus' resurrection. Who knows the whole story there? You can imagine the rivalries. But, but James is a, a new Christian, has recently come to discover who Jesus really, truly is and has been trans transformed by Jesus. And so here we are in this context. If we were to encounter a James, we would encounter a, a newer Christian 
someone who has, has given their lives over to this kind of transformation, but, but perhaps has a lot of questions, a lot of doubts, a lot of newness to navigate. James becomes a, a, a vitally important leader in the church, in the forming church uh, beyond Acts 2 and, and beyond Acts 15. A person who has eyes to see uh, something larger and wider. And you see, he also had a, a hunger for and a deep understanding of Scripture. This guy knows his stuff. Maybe he knows it too, mu- too well, too much. But he is interested in seeing the intersection of what he knows and believes and, ha- and has a deep understanding of and how that gets applied to the community. Newer Christian, hungry ready to apply these things. Lots of questions. We need perspectives like this in the church. They are valuable. I think of our young people, our our youth, our kids, who are growing and, and nurturing in their faith, who are just deeply hungry, period. I feel like young people are just deeply hungry, period. And they uh, want good connection between what they learn here and how it goes in the world. I think that they are our Jameses. That was a few too many, but you know what I mean. <laughs> they are our James. They are valuable. We need perspectives like this. And then we have Paul and Paul's uh, partner, Barnabas. Paul, this guy was a problem for Christians. This guy was out not only just picketing against Christians, he was killing them. This is a guy you did not want in your fellowship. This was a guy you would have escorted out of the sanctuary because he was a threat. And then this guy encounters Jesus. And things change. You see, Paul was... Uh, perhaps in our perspective these days, that naysayer, that one who, who, who would, who would um, be aggressive towards those of faith, those who would argue. He was an opposer and he was an influence against her. Why would we ever want that here? But then he meets Jesus and everything changes. And it's like everything on a drop of a hat is totally different. See, before his conversion, Paul was, or Saul was, was the most unlikely to do the will of God. And now, here he is, pursuing the will of God. We need perspectives like this. We need the perspective of even those who might have been against us before. You see, no one is outside of the reach of God, and we need that perspective. Now, these are just four kind of zoom-ins on the perspectives that we have a a clue about. But it says in in Acts 15, too, that there were many other apostles and elders gathered there. Perspective after perspective after perspective. And the variety of perspectives were all looking at one another. And there were a few things that bound them all together. The person of Jesus who was made real to them, their experience of transformation in faith, and the desire for clarity. 
These were the things that unified them. And so as they're gathered together to make a decision, the conditions of that decision come before them. You see, the the leading question was, should Gentiles need to to follow the law of Moses, which is um, the the first five books of the Bible is where we read about and then receive uh, the law of Moses. If you want a little context and some light reading in the evenings, okay? Um, But the more specific question, the the question that led them to that question was, do the Gentiles need to be circumcised? All right? But this question was actually the first layer of of a deeper, wider, more expansive question. And the question was, is there something else? Is there something else that I can do to be sure of God's love and approval? There's something else I can do to be sure of God's love and approval. Whether or not we care to admit it, we are asking this question all the time of ourselves. This was the thing behind the thing. Often when we are presented with a pressing question uh, where we need to make a decision, we would do well to consider the questions that are housed underneath that question. Because there's often much deeper, soulful questions that motivate the initial question. And you see, curiosity and and time with those deeper questions would, would reveal themselves if we are attentive to them. You see, what was tricky for those that were gathered all together with their perspectives was that the unconditional love of God that so many had encountered in the person of Jesus seemed in conflict or at least very different than their relationship with God under the law. It was like you can't put these two together, oil and water. How could they be reconciled? And so we need to look at the role of the law in relation to all these things before we get to even their decision. You see, God uh, instituted the Mosaic law to preserve life and relationship with, with God and with self and with others. And it's called the Mosaic Law because God gave this law to Moses. Maybe you're remembering this. Now, God gave this law to Moses on Mount Sinai, and we read it in Exodus 19. And Moses walks down with the law. He might remember that. Okay, okay. Um, Here's the reason that God gave the law to Moses at that time, at that very specific time. uh, A new community was forming. Um, It was forming its own people, its own identity, After hundreds of years of slavery in Egypt, they were under another law. And as they came out from under that law and the oppression that came with being in slavery, they needed to become a community. And they had no idea how to do that. And so God wanted them to become something healthy and well. God wanted them to become uh, a community with as much health and flourishing as possible. And so God gave them the law out of a deep and abiding love for them. God wanted them to experience the fullness of life that that, that they could receive from God. God wanted them to experience 
healthy relationships. God wanted their love and affection. God wanted their safety and well-being. God wanted their interpersonal relationships to be mutually edifying, respectful, and honoring. And so God gave them the law so that things might go well with them. God was not interested in giving them the law to give them rules so that he can control them like little puppets. No, God wanted things to go well with them. That's what it says in Deuteronomy 12. Like a good parent or a good teacher or a good leader offers guidelines to those that they are entrusted with so that things would go well with those that they are entrusted with. A good uh, a good human's don't create rules so that they can have control. Good, good humans, don't do that. Good humans create rules and guidelines to care for the people. And a good God creates rules not to control but to care. So some examples. There were few food purity laws in place, not so that God controlled what the people put in their mouths, but so that the people wouldn't get the stomach flu. Okay? There were interpersonal laws in place so that the people knew how to respect one another and not kill one another. That makes sense to me. The law about mixing two kinds of fabrics, do you know this one? Was in place so that the people's tents and their clothes and, and their carrying bags wouldn't shred on them. People were to refrain, refrain from immoral sexual behavior because God created humankind to be complex creatures of spirituality and sexuality, and he wanted all of that to go well for them. This is a kindness on God's part. This is not wrath. It's not control. It's kindness. But these rules, the rules were never meant to be the means of salvation. That if I just follow all the rules God gave me, then I will be loved. I will be valued. I will be appreciated and I will be approved of. That is not how God intended these rules to work. The rules were not what preserved the people. It was God who preserved the people. And by obeying the rules, by respecting the limits, by honoring the God who offered these laws, the people made their commitments to God known. And when they failed, when they failed to live into those relational commitments with God, uh, there, there were consequences. Just like a good parent or a good leader or, or, or a good adult cares does for, for people under their care. And that consequence was that, that the people were removed from their homes, their land, their sense of personal identity. And this is a consistent story throughout Scripture. God wants God's people. And when they choose to not want back, there are consequences. And so here now, back at the Jerusalem Council, it's like we're fast-forwarding to the Jerusalem Council, when this concept is presented specifically to the Christian Pharisees, that perhaps the law uh, was no longer valid. Those who hold uh, the generational identity of the Jewish people are genuinely freaked out. Okay, these are the old-time religious pe religion people who are saying, we can't just do that. You can't just like, and then it's all different. You can't just do that. 
Because they know the history. Because they've seen the story before. Because if we don't follow the law, we're in exile again. we got to be careful. You see, this perspective was really important to the council. I'm fast-forwarding through the story just a little bit. And there was agreement that after the change was made, that the council did not want to ostracize the Christian Pharisees and the Jewish Christians who experienced these laws as good and helpful because they were there so that all might go well with them. And so what happens is there's a compromise. Can you even believe it? They could compromise. And we read in verses 28 and 29 that there are included um, in the letter and in their decision some helpful guidelines for the people so that all would go well with them. Now I want us to go back to the question beneath the question beneath the question of the people who gathered there. Is there something else we must require in order to be sure of God's love and approval? Peter was sure of one thing, that requiring too much would not go well for the people. He says we cannot yoke those to the law that have never known it or never known that kind of life or rule because we can't even be faithful to the rule, he says as a Jewish man. We're not even good at this. Why would we require other people to be good at this? That yoke is too heavy to bear, Peter says. Remember, Peter had a lot of time with Jesus. And I can imagine, he heard Jesus' words that's recorded in Matthew 11. And that, his, that Jesus' words were reverberating in Peter's soul as he spoke to the council. And so those words of Jesus' invitation, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is a different yoke. The yoke that Peter is referring to here, that Jesus referred to in Matthew 11, it's not a single yoke, okay? A yoke is used usually on oxen so that they might um, pull something that helps in a field, okay? But this, that's a, that would be a single yoke. What they're referring to is a training yoke. You see, a larger, more experienced oxen would be yoked to a younger uh, training oxen. And the little ox would learn the ways of oxendom. I think that's what they call it. The oxes. The oxes? Yes, the oxes. No, maybe not the farmers. But um, the, the, this young ox would learn the ways of oxendom by walking along with the experienced ox. Okay? They were not trained by being whipped. They were not trained by being forced. They were just brought up against one of its own kind, one who knew what they were doing and one who didn't. And they were connected together until that young one gathered the patterns, understood the relationship of an ox to the land of an ox and its responsibility um, to its master. And so that young one grew up under a yoke. And they learned from their larger, more experienced ox. 
seen how previously people were yoked to the law. But now people are invited to be yoked to Jesus. It's a very different thing. And this yoke is also so that things might go well for those who are yoked with Jesus. Being yoked to the law was so that things might go well for them. And now Jesus says the fulfillment of the law we are yoked to so that things might go well for us. So that we might learn the patterns of this Jesus. And you see the yoke doesn't give you a lot of space. So oftentimes those oxen, they were, they were bonking together. I can imagine the younger one constantly doing that. But this yoke is the thing that guides that young one along. That yoke keeps the young one close to Jesus. Trains the young one in the ways of Jesus. And as we hear from Jesus' own mouth, ways of gentleness and humility, ways of, of rest and renewal. I wonder, I wonder if, it, if the global church is going through a re-yoking. It has been examined that, that the global church, maybe even the national church, uh, that we have been yoked to things that are not Jesus. We have found ourselves yoked to nationalism and racism and sexism to power to money to control and we've allowed those things to tell us what we want we've allowed those things to direct us in the ways that we want them to go perhaps we've even yoked ourselves to the idea that grand visions and fancy strategy are the ways in which to be like jesus all the while ignoring an invitation by Jesus, to be yoked to him. We as a church get to be yoked to Jesus. And you as individuals, me as an individual, we get to be yoked to Jesus. This is a beautiful invitation. One of the things beneath the thing here in Acts 15 is the evidence that those gathered were, were con continually and, and, and consistently yoked to Christ. I think that's, that's what, what we're seeing um, in evidence of their decision. We are seeing individuals who chose to be yoked to Christ, that their lives were patterned in such a way that at the movement of Jesus, these people responded. And when they were together to make a decision, it wasn't each person's opinion that took precedence. It wasn't their desire for power, for money, for control, for Jewish nationalism, for the Jewish race to be uh, highest, for, for, for men to be the most in charge. It was actually the will of God that moved each of them towards one another and then towards a decision because they were yoked. I want the same thing for this church, for, for this community. I want each of us to be so committedly yoked to Christ that when God invites change, maybe, maybe even a change that goes beyond our own opinion or perspective, we would be willing to follow Christ. 
we would be up against Christ. Maybe bumping up against Jesus. That feels uncomfortable, but we would still go. It's interesting that the, the variety of perspectives brought to the council and then the variety of ways that this change that occurs uh, is confirmed by the people there. They decide that there is nothing else that they want to require in order to receive of God's love and approval. They give some suggested guidelines on living into that love and approval, but they decide nothing else we require. And it's confirmed in different ways by the different perspectives. For Peter, uh, when he is sharing, he says it's the work of the Holy Spirit that confirmed this in him. In verse 8, he says, God, who knows the heart, showed us that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did us. Peter, from his perspective, sees how God is bringing this decision about. Paul and Barnabas, Paul says that it was the signs and wonders that occurred along the way that made them consider a change. Verse 12, the whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and, and Paul telling them about the signs and wonders that God had done amongst the Gentiles through them. Signs and wonders, Holy Spirit. And then James. It was confirmed to James that this change needed to occur because of Scripture. Verses 16 through 18, he quotes, The rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name. He's quoting Scripture. He says, History tells us this is the decision. Paul and Barnabas say the signs and wonders tell us this decision. Peter says the work of the Holy Spirit has already done this. And so here is why we come to this decision. I love, I love, that as this uh, decision comes to a decision, we don't get the words, they made a decision. I mean, look, there's, there's, they, 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 we don't hear it. But we do read in this letter that they write to announce to all the Gentiles about this decision. They say it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. Those uses, yoked by Christ, uh, attentive to the Holy Spirit's work, found change amidst a variety of perspectives and the pressure of a decision. It was the work of God that brought these people together to begin with. And it was the work of God uh, to bring them to a unified decision based on all the variety of their perspectives. And then certainly, it was the work of the Spirit of God that settled into those gathered. It seemed good to the Spirit and to us. This is a miracle. I'm not totally sure of the specifics of change that we are congregationally being invited into. But I am sure that they are coming. And I am unsure of the specifics of change that present themselves to you each individually. But I am certain that there will be waves of change for you. And it's my prayer that, that you and that me, that, that we 
that we would be very interested in being yoked with Christ in these changes. That we would find ourselves so in step with the movement of Jesus that when change comes to us, when the decision comes to us, we might be found saying, it seems good to the Holy Spirit and to us. It seems good to the Holy Spirit and to us. And then therefore, it seems good to the Holy Spirit and to us and to me. That we wouldn't be found um, commanding a charge. That we wouldn't be found clinging to our own perspective, however beautiful and necessary they are. That we wouldn't even resist the change, hide ourselves from the change, uh, closet the change for the sake of it being difficult. And the fact that we're engineers, I love that. And, I, I, and that we're fearful. And that, if, <clears throat> that the way things are, are good and right. That we would not put change away for the sake of those things. But that our yoking with Christ might lead us towards embracing it. I've decided that I don't want to act or change or move before I know that it is good with the Holy Spirit and with us. This is how we get to be. And if Acts 15 was a model for us, and I invite us, I encourage us, I implore us to seek the Spirit and to seek the yoke of Christ, that we might be more and more one, and that when these decisions, these changes come before us, we might be ready to receive them, not fearful, not resistant, curious, and ready. Would you pray with me? God, it's a miracle amongst miracles that we're even all in the same room. <laughs> and I sometimes forget that you love it so much. And God, as we go to this communion table today, may it be that we are seeking a yoking. May it be another step forward for us in being yoked with you. Maybe even the experience of being jostled up against you. And may through just receiving what you have to offer us, may we find ourselves compelled by the Holy Spirit to do what seems good to the Holy Spirit. And would we be interested in that? And so, God, we trust, we know that you will meet us in this meal, that you will love us through this meal, and that you will commission us by your great name.